Well, last August, we got another dog. We got a Labrador puppy named Augie. He and our nine-year-old lab, Gus, have become great friends. Gus is a he's a pretty well-trained, obedient dog. He does what you ask him to do. Now, Augie, on the other hand, is a, is a work in progress. He's got the commands come and sit, but the one we're having trouble with is lie down. He seems to think it means roll over so I can get my belly scratched. <laughs> Who could blame him? Augie needs to grow physically, he needs to grow intellectually, and he needs to learn obedience. Now, why is obedience important for dogs? Two reasons. One, it makes life better for the owner. Like when someone comes through your front door, you, you want your dog to listen and not jump up on some lady's dress. But two, obedience makes life better for the dog. We've all seen untrained dogs whose lives look like a reckless, anxious nightmare. Trust me, the dog is not happy when it lacks obedience. So too us humans. Today's passage highlights the importance of listening to Jesus and being obedient to his voice. The Bible says we are like sheep, not CEOs or, you know, presidents or kings. We are, we're like sheep. And that Jesus is what? The good shepherd. And his sheep, they know his voice. And so when we listen to our Lord, our lives are actually transformed. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. And so the big question for us, though, is this. Are we fully aware of just how dependent we are upon our Good Shepherd? Have we come to realize that without him we only fail? I'm afraid we tend to want to believe that we can, we can do it alone. Well, provided Jesus maybe, you know, helps a little bit. Today in this third servant song, we will see the servant Jesus again. And we'll see that Jesus is the voice above all voices that we must listen to and obey. We will look at that under three headings. Our devoted suffering scholar, our call to follow, and our incentives. We get some little doggy treats. Maybe not. Something like that. Before we begin, let me open. Let me, uh, let me pray for our time in the Word. Father, uh, we confess as we've been studying Isaiah, you keep saying, listen, hear, listen, listen. And we, we don't listen all that well. May this be a day where we lean in with great eager expectation because we know we live in a dark world and that we know we tend to light our own torches when really Jesus is the only light that should light our way. So help us in this hour to see more truly how we tend to live and help us to rest more and more upon our good shepherd. May we listen and hear his voice, we pray. Amen. So our first point is our devoted suffering scholar. So first, Isaiah shows us that the servant, he's knowledgeable, he's wise. Now, how do you think that knowledge came about? Well, he spent time learning. 
Think about how Jesus, when he was a boy, how he must have spent hours and hours and hours studying the scriptures, for he knew them so well. Verse 4 says that the servant um, says two times that he is the one who is taught. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. First, a couple of points to chew on here. First, the servant, uh, who we now know is Jesus Christ, of course, the servant devoured his Bible. He knew it inside out so that his worldview was so thoroughly saturated with the words of God and the ways of God, his heavenly Father. Let me just give you a few examples from last week's Bible reading plan if you're using it. If you recall the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples to, to go and get that donkey that's in the village and bring it out so that what is spoken of Zechariah in chapter 9 would come true. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. Then Jesus quoted scripture, of course, as he cleansed the temple of its money changers. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sensed, ah, I think Jesus might be condemning us with these parables. Are they, is he talking about us? Here is what he, Jesus quoted from Psalm 118. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. These are just three of the countless instances in which Jesus spoke as one whose ear has been awakened to hear, as one who has been taught. So first, the servant thoroughly devoured his Bible so that every thought was attuned to the word of God and the ways of God. Now, oh, that our lives would be changed morning by morning as we meditate upon the word of God that we have in our homes by our nightstands. And the second thing we need to chew on is this. Did you notice what the servant got all excited about because of his increased knowledge like he's learning from God's word, and he's going, oh my gosh, I can't wait to use this. You see his purpose in verse 4. So that I may know how to sustain him with the word who is weary. Oh, how beautiful is that? What Isaiah is saying here is that when Jesus read his Bible, he got excited for how his knowledge could be helpful in helping weary souls. Sadly, there are many Christians who turn into judgmental know-it-alls with each Bible class they take. They use their elevated Bible knowledge to draw prideful boundaries between them and other Christians. And they tend to define themselves by what they're not. We're not like them. We're not like those errant Calvinists. Uh, we're not like those social justice Christians. We're, we're not like those in our denominations who actually allow women to serve as leaders in ministry. 
Listen, be very careful that your Bible learning doesn't turn you into a finger-pointing moralist. Be very, very careful not to let your increased Bible knowledge pigeonhole you into an ever-shrinking circle of those who truly know. It happens so easy. Instead, knowledge of God and his ways should lead us to become instruments of his grace to a weary world. Next, Isaiah shows us the servant of the Lord is a sufferer, verses 5 and 6. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Does this not sound like Jesus? Listen, Jesus did not end up on the cross by accident. He knew where he was going. He willingly gave his back to those who strike. As Paul spoke of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, ponder this truth. Because the world is the way the world is, Jesus could not not suffer. Just as a den of coyotes, or is it coyotes? I don't know. Just as a den of coyotes cannot not eat the unlucky rabbit that falls into its den, so too this world could not not crucify the light of the world. This world prefers darkness over light. It calls good evil and evil good. And so if you're a Christian here, know this. God is making you more like Jesus. Yes, I know, it's a slow process. <laughs> Trust me, I know. But God is making you more like him. It's happening to you. Which means the more Christ-like we become, the more we offer our backs and cheeks to those who strike because of the righteousness of Christ in us. This is the world we live in. And so when you're inviting people to Christianity Explored next week, yep, don't be surprised when that good friend just thinks you're a kook for believing that stuff, for being serious. Oh, he's, he's really religious. Listen, the more God gives us tongues that are taught, the more we live to sustain our weary, unbelieving friends. And those you are inviting to Christianity Explored are weary. They're anxious. They just don't know it. They're walking in darkness, and you have the way to the light, and you can point them to it. The more we live this way, the more we're persecuted. But if our fear of suffering keeps us from being obedient, then we and they miss out on God's cheerful presence and blessing. Can you see there's a lot on the line here? Next, Isaiah shows us the servant's confidence in verses 7 and 8. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. The more we know God, the more we delight in his ways, the more confidence we have to live as those who suffer for Christ's sake. Jesus was able to set his face like flint towards the cross because he knew that it was the Lord who helps him. He knows that even though he's falsely persecuted and suffers mightily, the one who vindicates is near. And knowing that gives him courage and confidence in the midst of his suffering, so to us. And Christian, this is a life we're called to. In the midst of our suffering for Christ's sake, we are to serve the Lord with confidence. You didn't end up there by accident. The Lord knows what he's doing. The last thing we learn about of the servant in verse 9 is that God ultimately vindicates him. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. My friends, the servant of the Lord here in Isaiah has come. Jesus has lived and died in obedience to his father's calling upon him. And guess what? He is risen. The resurrection of Jesus displays his eternal vindication. And it speaks also to us of our eternal vindication. Our lives are hidden in Christ. So too, we will raise, be raised um, on that day to come into eternal life. As Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. (laughs) Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There's vindication. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So first Isaiah shows us our devoted suffering scholar, Now he presents us with a life-changing choice. We're presented with our call to follow him. You know, there are two main questions that you have in your mind every time a new leader comes into your your life. Matters not whether you're interviewing a personal trainer or a tutor, maybe a dog trainer, get a new boss, you're you're in high school athletics, you got a coach. The two questions are, can I trust you? And can you take me where I need to go? Those are two questions that we ask of every leader. Someday there will be a new pastor here. Can we trust him? Can he lead me? Isaiah wants us to trust the servant, for only he can take us where we need to go. He is trustworthy. And so we should actually, listen, we should fear missing out on him. We should fear not following after him. And we should listen to his voice and obey and follow. That is the call in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Isaiah here presents us with an important choice. Will we trust and obey and follow Christ, or will we pridefully trust ourselves and fail miserably? And we should be afraid to say no to the servant's call. You know, God's people fear the Lord, not in the sense that we're afraid of him, like, oh my gosh. 
No, but because we esteem him above all things. And we so deem him worthy of our reverence and awe. And we also fear our tendency to disobey, to not listen. And as our text points out, we should fear walking in the dark world without the servant of the Lord to guide us. You see, mature Christians know how prone they are to wander. New Christians are like, I can do this. This is easy. I just follow Jesus. Like, yeah, there'll be a day. You're prone to wander. As Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, the Christian knows that he or she lives in a world of darkness and that the only light, only the light of Christ can light his or her way. And so we gladly welcome the, the part of verse 10 that says, let him who walks in darkness and has, what? No light, not some light. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Look, this is us that Isaiah is talking about here. We are those who are walking in darkness and have no light. This is the human condition. But most people swear, you know, I've got some light. It might not be a lot, but I got a little. I'll be okay. Late last November, Nate Burns and I went deer hunting in Massachusetts to deer hunt. Boy, you got to get up early. <laughs> and then you got to hike for like a mile or two and pitch black darkness into the woods. And, and you know, try to find the deer stand. Some guy says, hey, it's over there by the creek. <laughs> It's so disorienting. Then you climb up the tree stand and you just sit there waiting for the sunrise. That is what the Christian life of faith is like. We walk in darkness. The only light we have is Christ. There is no other light to which we should turn. We walk in darkness. Christ is our light. That is what Christian faith is like. This is a dark and perplexing world, even for mature Christians. Life is hard, it's dark, but God gives us light. Ray Ortland Jr. makes a helpful observation here. He says, listen, we might be there in the darkness because we are obeying God. But here's a great truth. Faith offsets darkness. And listen, darkness is what faith is for. It's there that we trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God. Now, Isaiah presents a second possible response. We see it in verse 11. Verse 11, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Go ahead, walk by the light of your fire. See how far it gets you. And by the torches you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You, you shall lie down in torment. Here we see how the world often responds to the call of Christ. It responds with self-sufficiency instead of Christ's dependence. Oh yeah, the world's a dark place. I, I'll light a torch. I got my degree, my education, I got my money. 
Isaiah says that in this world, people light their own fires, their own torches, which symbolizes our natural bent that we have to take matters into our own hands. And it's true. We privileged Americans, we, we often feel this great sense of control here in America, right? We've got unparalleled access to all these basic necessities of life, and we can... You know, we can Uber Eats and Venmo, we all kinds of stuff. There's this sense of control also. It's further bolstered by the, the self-help and the wellness industry, which promotes the idea that we can, we can manage any discomfort through various means, uh, such as uh, the right diet, uh, time management tools, or, you know, better mindfulness practices. Moreover, this is where it hits home with us Christians. As Christians, there can be a belief that a strong theology and a dedication to spiritual disciplines can protect us from life's challenges. This might have been what Job's friends thought about concerning Job. They said that if Job was a righteous man, then God wouldn't let these sufferings come his way. Many Christians think the same thing. The illusion of invincibility is why many Christians are shocked and even offended when they face hardship. It's humbling. It's a humbling realization that suffering and death are intrinsic to the human experience, regardless of our virtues or our attentiveness. Whether you are a Christian or not, this is a dark world. And so Isaiah asks us, Will we light our own torches, or will we sit in the dark listening for and obeying the voice of the servant of the Lord? Are you comfortable being in the dark, waiting and listening for the voice of Christ? Isaiah is biased, right? He wants God's people to make a wise commitment. He wants you to see that he has answered your two big questions. Can I trust him? Yes, more than anyone else in all of creation. And can he take you where you need to go? Yes, he alone knows the way, and he delights to lead you. So we looked at our devoted suffering scholar and our call to follow. Now for some incentives. You know, years ago, I think it was like back in the 70s, they probably stopped in the 80s, you know, banks used to offer incentives for new customers who opened up accounts, and the common gift was what? A toaster. <laughs> they don't do that anymore. I'm kind of thankful. They'll just give you like, hey, refer a friend. I'll give you 50 bucks. And we're like, okay, that's cool. Um, by the way, if anybody wants a SoFi link, um, I'm just joking. You know, incentives are a part of everyday life, right? Like, what would incentivize a person who normally sleeps in to 7.30 in the morning to get up at 4.30? Perhaps, an inter perhaps a flight to Hawaii? Perhaps the fish are biting? We look at incentives everywhere in our daily lives. Our last point looks at the incentives or assurances that God gives us. Now, why would we need incentives or assurances from God? Here's why. My guess is it's that we know that listening 
and obeying to Christ is no easy task. Oh, we trust Christ, and we believe that he can get us where we need to go. It's not him, it's us. We know ourselves well enough to doubt our own staying power. We know that if we yield our lives to Christ, then nothing is off the table, including our wealth and our health and our comfort. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so the call upon us in verse 10 confronts us with one of those rubber-hits-the-road kind of moments in the Christian life. We can feel like saying yes to him, but we know how prone we are in the end to talk ourselves out of it or to get distracted. But God knows this about his people, so he speaks through Isaiah to encourage us and to keep us engaged, to keep us listening to Christ. These three encouragements are easy to spot. If your Bible is open, verse 1 and verse 7 begins with the words, listen to me. Verse 4 begins with, give attention to me. Also, you should know the word righteousness appears five times in eight verses. And of course, righteousness is a beautiful, it's a good thing. The answer for all that ills this world is more righteousness. And righteousness is the byproduct of a Godward life. It is God's work in his people to make us more and more like Christ. And of course, the Lord's work on the words on the Sermon on the Mount describe this Godward life of the disciple. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's reward for the pursuit of righteousness. There's incentives, and that's a good thing. The first incentive or insurance that we see in our text is that God is a life giver. See it in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and from the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord, with joy and gladness. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. God is saying, look to the rock you were hewn from. It's it's Abraham, the father of our faith, the one to whom God promised that his offspring would be as bountiful as the stars in the heavens, that, that the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. God is, God, Abraham believed God that he would raise Isaac from the dead, and, and God credited him as righteousness, right? God is saying, what I did to Abraham is no fluke. No, he is a pattern for how I relate to all my people. Sarah's body was old and barren, but God produced life in her dead womb. And we too who were dead in our sins and trespasses, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Christian, you are alive in Christ. That's our motto here at Grace Church. If you're new, that's our motto, alive in Christ. 
it is our assurance as well as our incentive to listen to the voice of his servant and obey him. The second incentive is that God is a world changer. Ortland writes, we don't like the way the world is now. Neither does God. The difference is he can change it. Through the gospel, he is sending out his law and his light, says Isaiah, for all peoples everywhere. And he goes before us as he spreads salvation to create a welcoming response in people's hearts all over the world. I know we're afraid to invite people to Christianity. We think people are going to throw rocks at us, but God goes ahead to create a welcoming response. God is a world changer. We see it in verses 4 through 6. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arm will judge the peoples, the coastlands, hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. My friends, we are part of this very gospel movement today. Isaiah says that what we are doing by sharing the gospel, it's changing the world. And also this gospel work we're involved with, it will definitely outlast every brilliant human project. The United Nations, Isaiah says it will wear out like a garment. The World Bank, the Humane Society, I like the Humane Society the NAACP, the United States, none will last. But if you are in Christ, the gospel change you work for today will last forever. Why? Because our God is a world changer. Lastly, the third incentive or assurance is that God is a courage inspirer. We see this in the Bible elsewhere. When Moses was 120 years old and about to die in the wilderness, remember he never made it into the promised land, he emboldened the next uh, leader of God's people, Joshua, and he said these words while the whole nation was listening in. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Oh, that we would know as we listen to the Lord and obey his call to go into the world with his good news that the Lord goes before us and he's with us and his plans for his people are sure and they are certain. 
That's what the Lord says in the final two verses, verses 7 and 8. Again, listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed by their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Our God is a courage inspirer. Why? Because we need courage. And there's no greater encourager than the Lord. He knows our frailties, does he not? He knows our tendencies to start, to start something beautiful and grand, but then fade in our commitments over time. And to live in this world for Christ's sake, this dark world, brings a lot of what Isaiah calls reproach and revilings. Isaiah is saying what Paul wrote of in Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, Grace Church, God is a gift-giving, world-changing, courage-inspiring Heavenly Father who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to the power at work within us. That's amazing. If only we could listen and believe when we hear that. This morning we've seen that Jesus is the voice above all voices that we must listen to and obey. He came and lived as our devoted, suffering scholar. He has saved us. And he's called us to walk in this dark world by his light. And we have our Lord's assurances and incentives to faithfully follow after him. And so as we come to the Lord's table, the question is, will you light your own torch and follow your own paths in the darkness? Believing that your best life is the life you choose for yourself. Or will you believe that your best life is the life that Jesus is leading you into? Will you listen to his voice and obey him who said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Will you each day wake up praying, Not my will, but thy will be done? And will you believe that as you pray, Not my will, but thy will be done, that that the Lord Jesus Christ will daily light your path and go ahead of you? May the Lord grant us all the grace today to listen to his voice and trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's pray. Father, your kindness overflows. We're thankful that the word of God brings mercy to a world that is in need of mercy. We are those very people. We're not too prideful to admit. We we are daily daily debtors to your mercy. We are the people that you came to save. We are sheep that often stray. But we're thankful, Jesus, that you are the servant who knows us. We do know your voice. We do seek to follow you. Help us in doing that today. We pray. Amen.